In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We talk about Jesus being the reason for this season. It's a kind of like a cliche that Christians have carried around I don't, forever, uh, for a long time. Um, and just like that, we use that as a reminder that Christmas has a lot of things that make it great. There's a lot of traditions. There's a lot of time with family. There's there's great baking. There's great dinners. There's great cookies. There's uh, sometimes great gifts, and sometimes we're not into that thing because we grew out of it or we never grew out of it. Or um, there's just there's trees and decorations and great music and like there's different things that make Christmas great to a lot of different people. But as Christians, we usually say, "But Jesus is the reason that it's great," and we're right in saying that. But I want to ask why. Why does Jesus make Christmas great? Well, because it's about Jesus. It's his birthday. Okay, great. Why do we Christians from 1,700 years ago, why do we start marking the birth, the day of his birth? Why have we started marking that? Like, what is significant? Well, it's the day he became human. Okay, but why is that significant? Like, we can give a lot of answers, but ultimately... I want us to go through Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 so that we can see precisely why it's significant that we keep this day, why we've looked at this day since the 300s or maybe the 400s, depends which side of the world you look at. Um, Why have we been looking at this day every year for so long? What I want to tell you, I think I... I think Hebrews wants to tell us, and I just want to lift out this part. This is such a rich passage. Um, But Hebrews wants to tell us that Christmas is great because it's when we remember that Christ partook in our flesh and blood. It's not just that he came to teach us about God. It's not just that he came as the climax of all the prophets. It's not that he came to show us light. All those things were great. But the most important thing is that he came as a real human being in real flesh and real blood. Not something like flesh. Not something kind of like humans. He came and partook in our flesh and blood. And that's why Christmas matters. Because, yes, he came and taught us who God is. Yes, he showed us light. Yes, he came to die on the cross. He did these things too. But none of that would matter if he had not partaken in our very flesh and in our very blood. 
I want to just go on then and see how Hebrews wants to say those very that very thing. So the first four verses we read are magnificent and worthy upon meditation for the rest of the year, really. Um, but I want to touch on something real simple um, about the way that our preacher, um, Hebrews is believed to be actually a, a sermon that was written down. I want to touch on some of the ways that our preacher talks about Christ. So to begin with, Hebrews, this great sermon, has one main drive. Christ is superior to, and then he fills in the blank. Essentially, he makes seven points about what Christ supersedes. He's talking to Jews, it seems, so he's going to have a lot of Old Testament terminology. But what he does, first off, is he says that Christ is superior to the prophets. So that's, as you saw in verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And it goes on to describe that this son is superior to the prophets. And then our preacher goes on in chapters, the rest of chapters one and two, to say that Christ is superior to the angels. Then he's going to say that Christ is superior to Moses in chapters three and four. Christ is superior fourth to the priesthood of Israel in chapters five and seven. Chapter eight, Christ is superior to the covenant that God made with Moses. And then in chapter nine, He's going to say that Christ is superior to the tabernacle and the temple. These structures that they made that were replicas of heaven on earth. He's superior to these because he himself is the pattern of these things. And finally, Hebrews closes in chapter 10. Well, his last point, at least. He closes with a lot of other um, encouragement to the church. But he closes his seventh point by saying that Christ is superior to the sacrifices in chapter 10. Because not only was he the sacrifice, he is our sacrifice. And we in him can give ourselves as sacrifices to God. So Hebrews' main point is that Christ is superior to all things. And now he shows us here that Christ is superior to the prophets and the angels. Now, verses 1 through 4 work in a classic Hebrew pattern. Um, kind of like how Americans like to communicate in our structures. We like to, we like to have hooks. We then have a thesis and we support our thesis with three strong and solid points. And if we're ambitious and zealous, we then bring in counter arguments and address those. And then we conclude everything. Like we have our structure, right? Um, typically, like you can kind of typically think of your essay structure. Um, the Jews had their favorite structure if they wanted to make an important point. And it was called a chiasm. A chiasm made a point not by saying at the beginning or the end, but by saying it in the middle. And around that main point, it would mirror other points around it. It's really hard to visualize in your head, so you kind of have to see it. So the way I like to explain a chiasm, um, actually, I've never explained it this way, so I hope it works. It dawned on me today that this might be a good way to do it, um, is if you take your hands and you link up your four fingers, uh, your, your main fingers. Um, and if you look at that, what you see is you have what is reflected by a chiasm. So on the outer points, you have your pinkies. Um, and then, right, your ring fingers, and then your middle fingers, and then your index fingers. 
Um, so the index fingers form the middle. This is the main point of the structure. But it's going to be balanced then by middle fingers. It's going to say the same thing on either end of it. Ring fingers, it's going to be the same point on either end. Pinky fingers, same point. So in this instance, our middle point is balanced by three ideas that are mirrored. And you see it with the hands? Mm -hmm. So the beginning and the end are going to be the same point. And it's going to work its way in is kind of how that looks. Um, so let's follow that concept. There's going to be three points, a midsection, and then three mirroring points coming out, okay? Because um, the reason you look at this is because what Jews would do is they emphasize the middle is the most important point. And what you'll notice in this one is that our, our three reflections are increased on the other side of the middle. You'll, you'll see that once we go through it, okay? So verse 1, um, we see that Jesus is greater than the prophets. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, so that's, that's, so that's like our pinky, okay? Prophets is our pinky. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So, ring finger. Jesus is the heir of all things. So, better than prophets, heir of all things. Now we come to the middle finger. Um, through whom also he created the world. So Jesus is the creator of the world. Okay, so that's our middle finger. Now we come to the center of this chiasm. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. I love that this is doubled up. He is the radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is our center. Okay, we could say he's the radiance of God and then he could be left thinking, okay, so God, Jesus is kind of like emanating God's likeness. But that's not at all what he's saying. He's saying more than that. He's saying that he's also the exact imprint of his nature. So it's not just that Jesus shows us what God is like. Because you know what? A really holy Christian can also show us, we're supposed to show people, what God is like. But he's also the exact imprint of his nature, meaning that Jesus himself is the nature of God. He is the presence of God. So he's not just radiating his glory as if there's an aura that's like God, but he's somehow different. He is the nature of God radiating from trueness, the likeness of God. Like the Nicene Creed says, he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That's what he is. He's the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus is not just a carbon copy of God or a duplicate of God, but he is the actual nature of God. That's radical thinking because in these older days when the Greeks had all their mythologies, the gods came down, but they, they never, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but they never became actual humans or they were half human, half God. Jesus is none of these. He is the exact imprint of God's nature, which if we start thinking through the fact that he's then going to partake in our flesh and blood, it's going to be said later, the exact imprint of God's nature is now partaking in our flesh and blood, what happens? There is a magical union. I, I shouldn't say magical. I'm just trying to use like, we're just using, we're beyond words here. There's something, there's a union and a communion of these things that are happening. 
Okay, so he's the exact imprint of his nature. That's the middle. So now we're gonna we're gonna come back now to the ring finger, the the middle, the ring and the pinky, but they're now going to be even bigger than they were on the front side. Okay? So what was the middle finger again? Jesus creates. So now look what happens. Um, after, where am I? Uh, exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So middle fingers. Jesus not only creates, but he upholds what was created by the word of his power. It's one thing to make something and let it go. It's another thing to make it and to be immersed in it and to keep it and to sustain it. How many of us have made things and let them decay and go to waste? This is one upping. So like now that we've seen the exact imprint of his nature, we can start going further into who Christ really is. So um, the ring finger, the middle fingers where he's, he's creator and he's the sustainer. If you remember the ring finger, the first one was he is the heir. Now look at what it says here. Um, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now he's king. He's reigning. He's not just the heir of things. He is now sitting at the right hand. And ring finger, or sorry, I'm getting them all. Okay. Pinky, there we go. Pinky fingers. So coming back out, the end of the cosmos. Um, we said he's better than prophets. Now he's better than other communicators. And these are higher than prophets. It says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we start off saying Jesus is better than prophets. He's the heir. He creates. Then we find out the exact imprint of God's nature. And then we realize, well, no, he's not just the creator. He's the sustainer. He's not just the heir. He is the king. And he's not just better than prophets. He's better than angels. So we've one upped each of these. That's how Hebrews begins. And it's just like, from this great introduction, it's the whole sermon just unfolds with just expounding on this greatness in much more granular ways. So, leaving off with the angels, he then says in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say? So what he's going to do is he's going to cite seven Old Testament verses to show that Jesus is far better than angels. Now, you and I might be thinking like, well, yeah, he's better than angels. But what we have to remember is that... Um, the Jews had high reverence for angels because in their tradition, it was through angels that the law was given from God to Moses. They were the intermediaries. So the great Torah, the great law, which they revered, they studied, they gave their lives to keeping, barring some major mistakes through the exile and such, but they, they did, they devoted themselves to this. Angels were the mediaries. But not anymore. Christ is the mediator of something greater. So the, the preacher wants to show us that he's better than angels. So seven verses. Uh, Psalm 2 verse 7. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Did he ever say that to an angel? No. Um, or again, this is Second Samuel 7 verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's when God is giving the promise to David that he will have an heir that will forever reign on the throne. Well, Christ fulfills that heir who will ever sit on the throne. And it was so cool. If you actually go back, God says like that heir will be to me like a son. And here Jesus is literally 
Well, it says, and he shall be to me a son. Christ is his son. Um, and again, verse 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let God's angels worship him. That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Or of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's Psalm 104, verse 4. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's Psalm 45. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And our sixth verse in verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. That's Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. And verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said? And this is the seventh and final citation in this evidence he's mounting. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the famous Psalm 110, verse 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So, our preacher concludes there with, look, angels were simply ministers to get us to salvation. Salvation's here in Christ. He's far superior. The angels are only but stepping stones to getting to the real thing. Therefore, seeing that Christ is better than angels, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How easy it is to drift away from who Christ actually is and to kind of just kind of go into these slogans of like, he's the reason for the season or Jesus is our best friend um, and to forget really to detail what he's doing, who he is, what he has done. And the author warns us like, let's, let's pay closer attention lest we just drift away. It's so easy to just get into drifting Christianity mode. And here's his reason. Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's talking about the law, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Look, if, if people were, were in bad shape because they disobeyed the law, what's going to happen if we disobey Christ? This is greater than that. We must pay careful attention. If, I'm sorry, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So he's talking about how, like, there were people who saw Jesus in action on earth, and then the church was brought about by the Spirit, and gifts were given to the church. This is happening. Let us pay great attention. So verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. 
For it has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, which we just prayed. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Now pause. I want you to remember Jesus' favorite title for himself, son of man. On one hand, Psalm 8, if we're looking at this purely from an Old Testament vantage point, Psalm 8 is a reflection on the creation of Adam and Eve and their role to rule over the world. Now, that didn't work because they, they chose to commune with the serpent instead. What the church is now doing, what the Bible is telling us to do, is to look at Psalm 8 as the new son of man, the new Adam, who's the one who is going to do the ruling that humanity was not able to do because of sin and death. So our author is telling us to read this as Christ, which is why we capitalized the pronouns at that part of the psalm, because we're just reading it New Testamently, New Testament-ish, New Testament-wise, from the POV of the NT. There you go. Um, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him. Now, we are talking about Christ. But in Christ, this applies to us too. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now our preacher says on this verse, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. So... This is likely talking about Christ. Although the New King James, if you're reading the New King James, it does not capitalize him. So it leads you to think that it's talking about humanity, which is also fair. But we're not in, we haven't subjected creation yet. But this is where you kind of have to do a, Christians love this. We have tension everywhere. It's a both and thing. It's Christ who's going to have subjection over the world, but in him we too. So I'm going to say yes and. It's it's referring to humans and Christ because we, you're going to see in a minute, he's going to make a very crystal clear argument that we are one with Christ. Okay? So it's one and the same. You following? Okay, so I'm just going to say Christ, but you insert yourself with that. So I'm going to read over this the, the pronouns here. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to Christ. God left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Christ, or you could say humans. But we see him, Jesus. Now, this is very clear. This is talking about Jesus. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Yes, he's superior than them, but for a moment in time, he became lower than, became lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do angels taste death? No. So what he's saying is Jesus is the son of man who for a little while is made lower than the angels because he descended not only to earth, but also descended to death little lower than the angels for a while four verse 10 it was fitting that god for whom 
and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. All things come from God. He's bringing all sons, or he's bringing many sons to glory. So therefore, he's going to make Jesus the founder of their salvation. How? Through suffering. Why? Verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that should be Jesus, because according to chapter 13, he's going to later say Jesus is sanctifying his people. So he, Jesus, who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, us, Jesus the sanctifier, us the sanctified. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's incredible. The source of Christ is, he's the exact imprint of God, of divinity. That's his source. He is God. And as he's sanctifying us, we, he's a sanctifier. We're being sanctified. It means we are being made into his image. He, from that source, is bringing us into sanctification. Into sanctification. If, if we're being sanctified through the same source, then that means that we are sharing in who he is, his source. We are partaking in this. This is this, this is where you can see how like these, these complex concepts later ended up with terms like theosis, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, and how these words came to be used because it explains this process of, remember theosis is the process of becoming partakers in the divine nature. This is some of where the concept comes from, is that we have one source, Christ in us, one source. That is why. He is not ashamed. Christ is not ashamed to call them brothers. We're so acquainted with saying children of God that we forget that the Bible also calls us brothers of Christ. And for the sake of our culture, we'll also say sisters. Although back then, you know, Women didn't inherit anything, so it wouldn't have worked to say that back then. That's the reason. We are siblings of Christ? Why? How? Because we have the same source. That's what he said. The one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are of, have one source. This means we have the same substance. Is Well... Substance may be a little too far. Um, we are, but we are partaking in, we are sharing in His nature, not becoming it, not not having it, but tasting it, being with it. Um, that's why He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Because look, we have the same Father, and if Christ is bringing us into His nature to share in His divine nature then that means we are sharing in the same family. We're not just lesser things that are just brought in. Because, yeah, why not? Come along for the ride. Like We are actually elevated to sibling status. So our author is getting this from the Old Testament, not only because of what Christ has done, but he's saying the Old Testament foresaw this in Psalm 22. That's what he cites in verse 12. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, 
In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. What? Okay. Psalm 22. David is in anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then there's a turning point and he says, but I will, you have raised me up, basically says. And then he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Like, I can't wait to go to the temple, <clears throat> our terminology, like, go to church and, and to declare with others, my, my family, what God has done for me. So David's thinking of other Israelites. I can't wait to go and declare God's goodness with them. Well, we know that the author of Hebrews is looking at this through the lens of Christ now because on the cross, Christ identified as this figure in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that the author of Hebrews is now seeing all of Psalm 22 as Jesus's words. And so he says that this is how he's supporting. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because he said, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Christ was in anguish on the cross. He was in the throes of death. Yet he was rescued by the Father. He was given resurrection by the power of the Spirit. And now he stands with us to proclaim the goodness. He is our worship leader like David was, but we are brothers with him because we've equally been rescued from death. Christ being simply the forerunner of such. And yet he's the exact imprint of God's nature. Okay, so again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. That's from, um, it's, it's, it's uh, from Psalm 18, verse 2, possibly. Um, it's not quite the same wording. Uh, and then again, uh, behold, I and the children God has given me. That's from Isaiah. Um, so the children God has given me. So now he's going to comment in verse 14. Since therefore the children share, talking about us, right? The children God has given him. Uh, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. I hope you understand how simple that is, right? You have flesh and blood, Suzanne, I think. Yeah. Um, I know I have flesh and blood. I, I, I had a major bloody nose yesterday. It came out of nowhere. Um, so I know I've got blood. I've got flesh. I think you guys do too, right? We share in this. This is the human lot, flesh and blood. So therefore, uh, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, the exact imprint of God's nature, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What things? Flesh and blood. He partook in flesh and blood. Where did he get his flesh and blood? Did he just like create it? Boom. No, because then it wouldn't actually be our flesh and blood. It wouldn't share in the lineage of Adam and Eve. This is why Mary is such a major, prominent figure in the Christmas story. It's not just like, well, we got to get to earth somehow. We'll use her. Um, no. Her flesh and blood became Christ's flesh and blood. He took from her womb. This was real birth. Like, he took flesh and blood from her womb. He is in every sense sharing, partaking in our flesh and blood. Unless you say Mary wasn't fully human, well, then I guess he isn't fully human. But Mary is fully human. Mary had parents and they had parents and so forth. Christ partakes in this flesh and blood. Why? That through death, he had to become like this so that he could die. 
so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And by destroying him, deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is why we say rejoice, Emmanuel has come. Why we say joy to the world, the Lord is come. Because by partaking in our flesh and blood, and therefore uniting our flesh and blood with the exact imprint of God's nature, he can go to death and not be trapped by it. Because he's the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. He can go to death and conquer it. And by bringing us there with him, by taking on our flesh and blood, death is broken. Death is broken. And it's why he came. It's so that the darkness, which is such a theme through Advent, the darkness and the waiting, that is finally broken. Not just because God opened the heavens and boom, shone light down. No, God became us so that we could become him. So that the natures of Christ can be united, both flesh and blood with divinity. This is made possible by giving us a way out of death. So, verse 16 For surely it is not angels that he helps. They don't die. They don't need his help. But he helps the offspring of Abraham, which you are part of through a faith in Christ. Paul says later, or other places like Galatians. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why did he have to share and partake in our flesh and blood? So that when he went and sat at the throne of the Most High, flesh and blood is sitting there with him. So that he can properly, how does he put it again? So that he could properly be a merciful and faithful high priest. If he wasn't fully human in every respect, he cannot represent us in every respect. He can only represent us to the degree that he became us. But he became us fully in every respect, our author says. So that he can be faithful and merciful. Because he knows. He doesn't just know, right, like knowledge, like I studied humans, I mean, I made them. No, he knows because he partook in our flesh and blood. He experienced what we experienced. He knows how sin can tempt. He knows the weaknesses that we experience, and he knows the strength and force of sin and death. He knows these things, so he can be a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, you can go look it up at home. It's literally just, it's, it refers to mercifulness. In fact, the, the, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, you remember how he prays. You guys know, because we pray it all the time through most of the year. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word merciful is the same Greek word as propitiation here. It's referring to making a way to apply mercy to a broken situation. So he becomes like us so that he can be a faithful high priest and bring mercy and healing to where we're broken. Because he can now infuse every part of me because he took on every part of me. 
He took on every part of humanity so he can heal and cleanse and unite every single part. There's no part of the human nature that is excluded from union with him. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he knows. And I mean, we can get nitty gritty, but it would seem from what I've read of the history of theology and thought on God and what, what the Bible says, like he knows what it's like to be tempted. When he goes in the wilderness, he's fully flesh and blood. And yes, he's also fully God. But this means that God, this means that Jesus, the, 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 the theological phrasing, which, which was worked out to eradicate heresy, Heresy brought a lot of helpful things to clarify our faith. It says that he was two natures in one person. That means he's a divine nature and a human nature. That means if he's both natures, he also has um, two wills. He can will what God wills. He can will what humans will. And the way that Christ heals us is by taking totally on our nature. He can choose then. What Christ did is in his temptation, he chooses what God wants and thus heals the human will. Because both are in him. So when he chooses the divine will, he heals the human will, which we suffer continually through. We keep choosing our will over God's will. And yet in Christ now, the Christian has the ability to baptize, to make new and regenerate this will so that the will can make choices according to God's will. Because in Christ, he's healing. He's the merciful and faithful high priest. This is what he's doing. Because he, he partook in our flesh and blood and fully experienced, how do you say it again? He, he has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So we cry out to him. He's there. Not because he has a formula, we'll do this when you're struggling with that, but because, like, I know what you're feeling. I was there, and this is how I did it. Let my mercy come to you. Let my grace strengthen you. You can move forward, Brandon. Right? The night is dark. It's deep. It's long. But the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his birth through Mary, coming in actual flesh and blood as a child to be gazed on by all, this is why we're healed and this is why we're saved. Like, yeah, Jesus is the reason for this season. But that's why. This is more than cool he came. This is like epic things happened simply when Mary said yes and he entered her womb, humanity was forever changed. And now we have a way to say yes to him. We have a way to walk with him. We have a way to say, okay, I want to be your brother, Christ. You must remake me because I've been a rebel. But this is what we have in salvation. We can become brothers and sisters of Christ, the firstborn, meaning He's the heir of it all, and we take a share of it with him. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen.